welcome to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. I'm Ruth Townend, Research Fellow in the Environment and Society Centre, and for the next two episodes, I'll be staging a COP28 takeover, looking ahead this week, then reflecting back on the conference in a few weeks' time. We're very cosy in the studio today here with three of my Environment and Society Centre teammates joining me. It's like an office cake scrum in here, but better than cake, we have expectations for the latest instalment of a multilateral process designed to combat one of the greatest challenges humanity will ever face. In the studio with me, Professor Tim Benton, Director of the Environment and Society Centre here at Chatham House. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. (laughs) Hello, Ruth. Thank you. Uh, next up, Anthony Froggart, Deputy Director and a Senior Research Fellow. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Thanks very much. And last but not least, Glada Lan, Senior Research Fellow. Welcome, Glada. Hi, Ruth. Thanks. Two things to warm us up. Firstly, uh, I have, in fact, brought cake, chocolate brownies to be specific. And yes, they're vegan. I considered making a cheap joke about offsetting my flight to Dubai, um, but having spent quite a few hours in workshops on the fungibility of different types of carbon over the last month, you don't even want to get me started on the reasons why cannellini bean aquafabia and jet fuel are not interchangeable. Um, So apologies to Jamie, who will have to edit out the sound of us eating these, but it's for the greater good. Okay, secondly, going to COP is always a bit of a roller coaster. Chatham House goes as an observer organisation. We go alongside thousands of others working in climate change to bring transparency and accountability to the process, to learn, to share our work and to meet with others in our fields and beyond. I wanted to ask the team for a COP high and a COP low from previous years to give our listeners a flavour of what the conference is like for those attending in person. Uh, Who would like to start us off? I'll go for a COP high. From a personal perspective, we did in COP26 a side event that was with delegations from China who couldn't travel because of COVID restrictions. And uh, we had Chris Stark from the Committee on Climate Change. Um, We had scientists from Oxford University. And we were discussing China's actions around climate change. And it was just a remarkable event because we did it simultaneous translation and the discussion was amazing with people being very candid from China about the economic opportunities and advantage of, of early action demonstration about what that meant internationally in terms of the opportunities to scale up renewables and then talking about the barriers for implementation. So, yeah, really successful. Glad has got one. So also from COP26 in Glasgow, we had a couple of highlights and, and one of them was not being able to get in to the launch of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which we played a role in um, facilitating the the discussions uh, between governments for over a a year-long process. And it was was a a very interesting moment because the room was so packed with journalists and attendees that uh, my colleague Anna and I were outside watching it on our phones. And I guess the low point was the food at both COP26 and 27 definitely could do better, both in terms of sustainability and accessibility and just basically plastic based. Yeah, I noticed the same. And you're looking at me, I guess. I'm looking at you, Tim. High points. Well, it's always interesting to see the wave of enthusiasm that's there, either in civil society or the multilateral process. But that's equally the low point is that year after year, the wave of enthusiasm doesn't quite break in the way that you want it to. 
my real high point is surviving each cop and getting home and still being alive because uh, as everyone who's been knows they are incredibly exhausting places to be yeah my own high point is kind of taps into that so it was me and Anna Albury who normally host this podcast uh, sat in a very late night plenary session sort of towards the end of the second week feeling very exhausted and and feeling like nothing was going to happen and then Franz Timmermans stood up and committed the EU to a loss and damage fund. And Anna and I watched the ripple of surprise spread through this room and saw Alok Sharma and John Kerry, who were sat behind us, immediately huddle together to discuss how to respond. And to me, that was a real a visceral illustration of how the negotiations can work and how one block or country can make a difference on a seemingly intractable problem with their actions. Um, a low point would be actually having a little cry, a little exhausted cry on the bus to COP27 on the last day of the conference. But again, a kind of high from feeling the solidarity of the people around me who are also putting their, you know, all of their resources into solving solving this enormous problem. Okay, so speaking of solving this enormous problem, I want to talk a bit with you about what is needed for COP28 to be considered a success. So what are the negotiated outcomes that you'll be hoping to see? The outcomes obviously are hugely important, but often they're largely symbolic. And while parties can be held accountable to each other, the consequences can be intangible. And in some cases, it feels like commitments made are then ignored. So what do you think will influence the progress that is made between this COP and the next? And also, obviously, we're going into this COP in the context of rising geopolitical tensions and multilateralism in crisis, according to some. So what can COP28 do to forward or showcase meaningful international cooperation and compromise in this situation? And then finally, we're going into the conference on the back of an extremely bad report card from the first global stop take, the Paris Processes accountability check that happens alongside the COP process. And that has shown that we're very much not on track. So how do you think leaders can respond to rebuild faith and demonstrate the necessary course correction is in the offing? I'm going to turn first to Anthony. I'd like to know where are we in terms of emissions and how are we going to accelerate to the level that is needed? It's the key question, isn't it? So in terms of where we are, if you look at the latest report that came out last week, assessing the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions, so what each country is putting forward in terms of their emissions reduction plans, approximately if those were all implemented by 2030, emissions probably would have fallen by about 2% from 2019 levels. If you look at that in terms of what's needed, by 2030, you'd probably need a 43% cut to be on track to the Paris Agreement. So 43% compared to 2% below is, yeah, huge. And that's where we are. So what, how does that shift? What, how, what changes the dial? So I mainly were focused on energy. Energy or CO2 emissions are sort of like around two thirds of the total emissions. And so we need to have a, a step change within the way in which energy is produced and the way in which we consume it. You mentioned the Global Stock Take Report. So we had the technical report that came out in September. That's sort of phase two. So phase one is each country putting forward their, where they are in terms of their progress. 
You then have a technical assessment of that. And as you rightly point out, the third phase, which will probably be in the first week of COP, is what does that mean from a political perspective? And there's some indications, some people are suggesting that progress has been insufficient for there to be a ministerial declaration in this area. It's, it's something to watch, is what level of final declaration around the global stock take is there. And the other thing is, uh, what's the language? And it, the purpose of the stock take is, one, is to look where we are. And there's questions about how far back do you look. But let's just say, first step is look where we are. And the second is how to accelerate it, because it's about using this midpoint within the UNFCCC cycle to increase the pledges so that as we move around to the next NDC contributions or pledges, which we made in two years' time, they are even more ambitious. And I'd say there's a, two areas in particular that are being talked about. One is trebling the current level of renewable energy. And we've seen the EU and the US saying, yes, we'll do this, and lots of other countries. But the degree to the, which that is embedded within either the global stock take and or the final decision from COP and how many countries sign up to it. Because it's, yeah, trebling the contribution in seven years would be an ambitious objective. Interestingly, or importantly, if you look at the, which countries that will really depend on, one is China in terms of its dominance within the global supply chain. So they, we need to put some of these tensions aside in order for us to help both reduce dependency on certain countries and increase confidence in countries in their own supply chains. But as I said, troubling that is a major task. And one hopes that not only there's national commitments to that, but hand in hand with that is the financing question. So if developing countries are able to make that pledge, they will need assistance. So it's a key area. It's not just the technology, the finance. And then the second point just to mention is energy efficiency. So talked about is doubling the current level of energy efficiency, which would be great. But it is a really challenging target. I mean, not to say the renewables isn't, but if you look at between 2021 and 2022, when we had the war in Ukraine significantly impacting upon the prices of global energy, the improvement in energy efficiency was only around 2%. So even then, where you have a real strong price driver, we need to go much further. So that requires policies and measures and international cooperation. So those are the two areas that I would think, A, is possible. It's technologically possible. It makes economic sense. It's just about implementation. Well, just. It's about implementation and cooperation to facilitate that. How optimistic do you feel about that actually coming to pass? I think over, you, you would have to break it down sector by sector. So you can look at solar and you can go, wow, what's the change? If you go, go back to Paris, 2015, there was talk about, oh, well, renewables, they may get cheaper and with a bit more support, we'll push them over. Now, solar in particular is the cheapest form of electricity generation ever. And we're seeing countries like China, as I said, China, it's like to deploy in 2023 around 200 gigawatts of total new capacity. That's double what there is in the United States currently. In one year, China's doing that. So there are areas in which you are seeing really rapid deployment, but others significantly less. So yeah, and as I said, energy efficiency, We've known since the 1960s, 1970s with the oil crisis, everyone said, oh, it's energy efficiency. That's what we need to be doing. We know that. But it's a matter of how do you operationalize that and really help to deliver reductions in overall energy consumption. Okay, so Tim, you're in the hotspot next. Food is on the agenda. Food <laughs> it's on is... the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell it's lunchtime when we're recording this? Food is on the agenda in a meaningful way for the first time at this COP. 
What does this mean and what are you hoping to see? Well, good question. Food is has to be on the agenda because food systems are responsible for a third of global greenhouse gas emissions and the majority of biodiversity loss. And of course, food systems are not working in the way that they should do in the sense of the number of people that are uh, suffering hunger, food insecurity properly, and the number of people who only eat unhealthy diets. And there was a report by the FAO out last week, which suggested that the total cost of ill health from diets on a global basis is $9 trillion. So, you know, about 10% of global GDP. So food systems, everybody's starting to acknowledge they are part of the problem and therefore they have to be part of the solution. But of course, politically, food is much more, in a sense, complicated than energy. I mean, energy is relatively straightforward because, you know, you have a few global companies and a few global states who are uh, exporting it and everybody else is importing it or uh, developing the infrastructure to do it. It sits within one ministry. People don't care where their electricity comes from as long as when they turn the lights on, the light goes on, whereas food is much more politically difficult. And the food, of course, is also the engine of development for many uh, countries in the global south in ways that fossil fuels are not. And so the idea of transforming food as opposed to just growing ever more industrial scale agriculture for global export and, uh, you know, global use as ultra processed food diets is politically quite difficult. So the history of food uh, in COP has been its absence. Over the last year or two, it's come fast up the agenda, in addition to the traditional kind of focus on agriculture and the supply side of agriculture. So it's very much part of both the negotiated and the presidency agendas. And the negotiations, I mean, if you look at the technical report on the global stock take, it talks about system transformation as an opportunity. And it doesn't just mean the energy system, it also means the food system. And I think we mustn't mustn't lose sight of the fact that the negotiated part of COP is only half of it. Perhaps only a, a quarter of, of what it actually achieves. Actually, a lot of what is achieved is countries getting together and agreeing to act together in ways that are not fettered by every country having to sign off uh, on, on the agreement. So there's a lot going on outside the negotiations, outside the global stock take, outside the global on adaptation, etc., that pertain to food. The presidency are asking, and they were asking this morning at the UK's Global Food Security Summit, asking countries to sign up to a declaration to say we recognise the centrality of food and climate. There are lots of other things that are going on, lots of kind of pledges that uh, countries are asked to sign up to, to commit to uh, action outside of the strict NDC negotiated settlement. So to answer your question, I will be happy if there is a significant step forward in recognising that we need to change the food system for the better and not just to find a fudge out of changing the food system to make it slightly less emitting, but largely leaving it as it is because it won't solve the biodiversity crisis and it won't solve the health crisis. We have to put food systems front and centre all the way through. On that, in terms of food system transformation, how much of the finance, do you know how much finance is going within the sort of the climate finance, the extent to which food system transformation, you talk about going up the political agenda, is it going up the financial agenda? Not in the way that it needs to. I mean, there's quite a lot of investment in adaptation in agriculture. 
uh, within the kind of broad innovation climate finance agenda for resilience building adaptation, uh, depending on how, how you term it. But in terms of actually the need to think about, well, how do you change your trade system? How do you change your food processing, your distribution? Much of food waste is, you know, in things that are more perishable, fruit and vegetables. And a lot of the global south does not access infrastructure, cold chain infrastructure. And so there's a huge amount of loss and, and wastage because of that uh, basic infrastructure. So there isn't enough investment in the whole space. And in a sense, we're caught in the path dependency of having a more or less global food system that relies just on a small number of grains, which don't suffer all of these issues to do with food, you know, soy or, or wheat, rice, maize, palm oil, etc. They're relatively easy to store, they're relatively easy to transport, and they don't need the sort of investment that we need to do if we're going to have a food system that is much more pro-health. Another problem, Tim, linked to what you were saying, is the way that trade currently functions is actually driving climate instability and lack of resilience in the producer countries uh, for a number of reasons. One is certainly water. We've been looking at um, the impacts of trade and consumption of uh, water-intensive products, textiles, food, minerals uh, in the rich countries. And uh, you know, a study that was produced uh, last spring by Water Witness uh, estimated that about 50% of that the sort of virtual water trade in, in, in the EU was um, was coming from really water-scarce uh, basins, really water-scarce areas of, of the world. And that leads to all sorts of problems of poverty and poor health and, uh, and even conflict. So one of the things that I, I hope gets raised at COP28 is how trading partners should, should work together. And, um, you know, the Fair Water Footprints Partnership that came out of Glasgow is, is one avenue to pursue that, how to get more sustainable and fairer use of water in those productive sectors that are often needed to drive economic development but are uh, causing, uh, you know, extreme uh, vulnerability to climate change in certain parts of the world. Thanks, Glada. Tim, you mentioned the links between the climate and biodiversity crises through the food sector, and these have been negotiated separately at different entirely different conferences up to now, but they are, as you say, inextricably linked. What outcomes do you expect from COP28 on nature, if any, and how can these be supported in other forums? Well, there's a, a long-running strand of work, which was called the Coronivia Dialogues, and now the Sharm something, something, something on food security and agriculture um, working group where they're trying to kind of tackle some of these issues. And as per my previous comments, there's also an awful lot of the forest declaration and so on, which is not part of the negotiated settlement. What can I expect? I mean, I'm slightly cynical in that I expect uh, quite a lot of hard work, but rather less in terms of the tangible outcomes. Part of the working group's output, I think, is going to be a roadmap towards food system transformation led by the FAO. But I suspect that's not going to be as ambitious, as clear-cutting as it needs to be. And countries will still be able to dodge and dive because part of the reality of the issue is that no one has any real sense of agreement about what a transformed system 
would look like. You know, with energy, it's relatively straightforward. With transport, it's relatively straightforward. But with food systems, is it about growing different things in different ways for local consumption? Is it about growing the same sorts of things in slightly less intensive ways uh, to preserve biodiversity and putting a fence around nature, but effectively growing more and more and more and shipping it all around the world? And all of those those two kind of ends of the continuum are represented in bits of the discourse at COP, the former more from civil society, the latter more from governments. But to get to a sense of this is where we really need tangible progress, somebody's got to stand up and say, actually, trying to keep more or less the same system and innovate to produce less biodiversity impact, less pressure on forests, more food is not going to work. And so it comes a bit down to what Anthony was saying about the demand side. To get real progress on food and its environmental impacts, we've got to start thinking about how much food do we need rather than growing as much as we can and then repurposing what is not used for human consumption into cattle feed or bioplastics or biopharmaceuticals or whatever, because we've got to start working on the demand side. Otherwise, progress will not be as fast as it needs to be to tackle those two challenges of the climate and the biodiversity. So adaptation has so far lacked a north star of a concrete goal equivalent to the 1.5 and 2 degree warming thresholds for mitigation. The global goal on adaptation, first described in the Paris Agreement, is meant to remedy this, but definition of the goal has been a long time coming. So far, adaptation has lacked a north star of a concrete goal equivalent to the 1.5 or 2 degree warming thresholds for mitigation. The global goal on adaptation first described in the Paris Agreement is meant to remedy this, but the definition of the goal has been a long time coming. Since COP26, work to push the goal forward has been underway. And at COP27, there was agreement to define a framework for the goal, which countries hoped could provide that North Star. Whether that framework can be agreed upon at COP28 is a key outcome to look for. The framework should define the goal, help measure progress towards it alongside the global stocktake, and help actors to put the goal into action. Not adopting a GDA framework at COP28 would mean missed chances to assess progress made, less informed efforts on adaptation finance, and most importantly, an unfulfilled mandate under the UNFCCC, which undermines the Paris Agreement. Adaptation finance is also a gap that developing countries need to see closed. At COP26, developed countries committed to double adaptation finance by 2025, But that goal, in keeping with other financial commitments, such as the 100 billion of climate finance, is not on the agreed track. To get it on track, new finance commitments need to be announced in Dubai, something that would build trust and demonstrate to developing countries that there is an intent to follow through on promises made. In thinking about adaptation, as we've detailed in Chatham House's recent recommendations for the EU on managing cascading climate risks, Countries need to consider the cross-border aspects of risks and the benefits of wider resilience. Climate impacts have no respect for international borders and high-income countries, as you've just been saying, Tim, need to better understand how global resilience can be an investment in their own national interests or they're likely to become mired in firefighting rather than proactive responses as climate hazards increase. 
Where mitigation and adaptation fail, loss and damage are the consequences. Unexpected agreement to establish a loss and damage fund was the headline coming out of COP27, and we'll be watching to see how that agenda moves forward at COP28. So since COP27, progress on the fund has been guided by the work of a transitional committee, which has now given recommendations for a draft decision, including how the fund should be governed and the funding arrangements. And at COP28, negotiators and governments will consider these recommendations. According to those, the fund would have its own independent secretariat and would be hosted by the World Bank for a trial period of four years. There's a balanced proposal for a 26-member board and contributions to the fund would be on a voluntary basis, something that was hard negotiated during those technical dialogues in the transitional committee. More detailed conditions such as who can access the fund have also been laid out in the recommendations as well as thresholds and mechanisms of use. It's really critical that this loss and damage fund is agreed at COP28 and that early and generous pledges are needed from developed countries. The EU, which has led the way among developed countries to establish the fund, has recently signalled its intent to give a substantial contribution, which is encouraging, and others should follow suit. The fund needs to provide dependable, predictable finance at scale. And the World Bank needs to confirm that it can meet the conditions and act in this interim host role to enable the finance to begin to flow. So, Glader, while we're on finance, let's talk about the 100 billion promised from rich countries to developing countries um, for climate finance. So this was supposed to be an annual sum met between 2020 and 2025. Um, We've had word recently that it might have been shown to have been met, um, but I'd like to hear more about why it's important and what we can expect from this this stream of climate finance at COP28. Sure. Climate finance is such an important topic for mutual trust building and the ability to keep everybody together on this to to basically address uh, the, the the bottom line in cooperation, and that is is based on responsibility for emissions um, and resp- therefore responsibility for um, helping those countries who've been less responsible to mitigate and adapt in the ways that they need to. And of course, loss and damages then come on top of that. That's a new feature of, of, of climate finance, potentially. So in the last few years, the official figures show that that finance has been reaching 70 to 80 billion a year but the figures are contested I mean you had an Oxfam report out saying that say the 2020 figure said around 80 and it was actually that they they said it was only about 24 when you looked into the numbers only about 24 billion if you if you looked at the the loans at, at face value for instance and question some of the benefits that some of these climate finance projects were supposed to have. So there has been a lot of concern about the transparency and the accountability, and you definitely uh, hope that that would be um, on the agenda. One of the problems, as you said, that over time, the needs have become much greater, in fact. So you've got climate change affecting poorer countries to a much greater extent than they were ten, even 10 years ago. We see the multi-year droughts across Asia, parts of Africa, extreme flooding of the type we saw in, say, Malawi earlier this year, in Libya. So it, it's kind of, it's trying to, climate finance has to try to address some of those adaptation needs while helping countries to put in place a low carbon infrastructure. 
So it's also tended to flow to middle-income countries and not the most vulnerable because those, uh, the middle and higher-middle-income countries have better institutions um, set up to access and manage those funds. And it's gone mainly into mitigation technologies, uh, especially renewable energy, where there's some kind of commercial case where there's there's some money to be made rather than into adaptation, as you, as you mentioned, because things like regenerating ecosystems to keep soil in place or building drainage infrastructure often doesn't have, um, you know, there's not much profits to be made in it, or if, if any. There is this new collective quantified goal on climate finance that's due uh, to be addressed next COP, so in 2024, COP29, um, and that will take over from the, the agreement in 2009 and, and lead the way for climate finance post-2025. And the idea that this should be more transparent, more accountable, and that the approach to dialogue between countries is more constructive, really looking at, at needs on the ground. So you'd really hope that COP28 delivers a foundation for trust building, uh, given that you know relationships between global north and south is, are pretty much in tatters for other reasons. and You'd like to see uh, a recognition that that governments will elevate the planning for this new goal uh, into other critical fora like the G7 and the G20. There should also be acknowledgement that there are three parts to it, mitigation, adaptation and and loss and damage, ideally. And you've still got the majority of, of, of the finance that we've talked about is coming from the multilateral development banks and bilaterally from donors, only about 15 to 20% is coming from the private sector. And the idea was always to leverage more of that over time. So there's been a lot of discussion around reform in, in multilateral development banks like the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank about how to do that. And definitely more uh, grant funding is needed because a lot of the countries we're talking about are deeply indebted. They've been the ones that have found it hardest to access climate finance and they're very unwilling to take on more debt. So more grant funding. And probably lastly, as well, is that it probably needs to shift away from just funding projects and needs to look at broader financial system development in the areas into which that climate finance needs to flow, because often the banking systems, the institutional structures are not set up to make that climate finance deliver at the scale that it's needed and be sustainable to kind of encourage the markets to take over where the blended or grant finance drops off. And speaking of those that sort of market element of finance, after COVID and various economic crises at home, Governments are quite reluctant, aren't they, to spend more both on domestic energy transitions, as we've seen here in the UK, lots of narratives around the cost of net zero, but also climate finance abroad. So how can public finance increase private finance in this space? And is that a solution that you're hoping to see come to the fore at COP28? Yeah, so certainly there's a role for the multilateral development banks there. They are good at mobilising private sector finance. There's a lot more that they could do with an increase in their capital. And I think there'll be a lot of emphasis on that. There's also, there's a lot of money in the system uh, and there's a lot of lost opportunity in the system from actually something that that, um, Anthony commented on earlier. I think you said that efficiency had only increased about 2%, 2%, right, um, since the, the rise in fuel prices over the last year or so. And I mean, part of the reason is that the true costs of fossil fuels in particular, it, it's not been passed on to, to the consumer. Now, in some cases, it's very hard to pass that cost on for various reasons. 
But certainly in the rich economies, it's been very surprising to see subsidies rise. And and globally, in 2022, you saw a a doubling of uh, subsidies that basically encouraged consumption of fossil fuels. 1.2 trillion is the figure given by the IMF in terms of governments supplying the gap between the actual cost of energy and, and the price. If you take into account the unpriced environmental impacts and the tax breaks that, that producers um, fossil fuels get, you, you come to a figure of more around seven, seven trillion. So that's a lot of money that could be going both into domestic energy transition and into uh, climate finance abroad. Thanks, Glader. OK, a couple of last thoughts I want to talk about. One is there's been a lot of discussion around the language on fossil fuels in the cover decision. So uh, another dramatic moment at COP27 saw a high ambition coalition of governments come together and demand that the final text included reference to fossil fuel phase out rather than fossil fuel phase down and that language around coal and unabated fossil fuels was expanded. That wasn't ultimately successful, but again, we're hearing uh, talk about having this fossil fuel phase out language at COP28. Is this something that you feel is important? Do you feel it's realistic? What difference could it make if it happens? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. I mean, Anthony pointed to how much CO2 is accounted for by by energy, about, what did you say, two two thirds? If you look at Greenhouse gas emissions overall, so including methane, at least 70% can be attributed to coal, oil, and gas. So it's this is a huge, these are huge, huge sectors to address. And what's quite interesting is that fossil fuels really weren't brought into the conversation at COP in terms of, you know, what, what, what should be in the text until uh, Glasgow in, in 2021. So, and, and there, there was some wording about phase down of unabated coal. I think there's now a push to to include oil and gas within that and say fossil fuels overall. We had a report from, from the UN, the UN production gap earlier this year, which uh, showed that, that if you take them together, government plans and projections would actually increase the amount of fossil fuels in 2030 to sort of double what it should be if we are still aiming for, for the 1.5. Um, but even if we're aiming for somewhere below two degrees, we know that that amount has to be cut drastically. I mean, the other way to look at that is that the market is changing very quickly because of the reducing cost of, of renewable energy, because of the various policies that that increase efficiency and change change the way we build. And so that market is is shifting and it's really a, a great concern for the exporters of fossil fuels to have a managed transition out of, of high carbon fuels, of, of fossil fuels over time. So this is a very important discussion for everyone. It's, it's just unfortunate that it's become quite conflicted, you know, and that language is fought over. However, I, I think COP28 is an opportunity to get something in the text, whether it says phase down or phase out. And there's a lot of support now, I think, for talking about just transitions, equitable transitions, and how that could be worked out at the global level. So the importance of having fossil fuel phase out or phase down in the text is really to enable that conversation to have practical implications and to also send the right signals for investment and business. 
Okay, we're running out of time and I think we should all get back to our desks soon. But just to wrap things up, it's been a geopolitically and meteorologically stormy autumn uh, with lots of extreme events wherever we look um, and multiple temporary breaches of the 1.5 global average temperature threshold. Before we do return to our desks, how are you feeling about the prospects of the Paris Agreement's 1.5 threshold? Does it still seem feasible to you? And how helpful is it to keep talking about that threshold? If not, what should we talk about instead? (laughs) Yeah, good question. We passed two degrees this week for one day, at least. And so I think there is a really interesting issue that, yes, undoubtedly, we're going to cross 1.5 over the next few years in the sense of the Paris Agreement. We are likely to be close to 1.5 this year and perhaps above 1.5 next year but then hopefully drop down again. The question that I have is how long do we carry on saying, yes, 1.5 is in reach when we're past 1.5, when the heavy lifting then comes down to technologies which we don't yet have access to at scale, and whether or not the politics of climate change changes. Because 1.5 is an abstract concept. Net zero is an abstract concept. And if you talk to ordinary people, citizens are not in this bubble. They don't really have any idea. Whereas actually, we can do a hell of a lot more tangibly now that is not linked directly to a 1.5 vision or a net zero vision, you know, rollout of new grid connections, electric charging points, changing food system, changing agriculture, changing our trade, you know, changing standards so that trade can be done in a sustainable way according to the same sorts of things. So there are lots of things that could be done. And I think as more and more people in the world get hurt by climate change, there will be new political space for action. And that's not to say that Paris will have failed or the whole kind of notion of the Paris Agreement will have failed. I just think people will want to see that we are actually going to be able to tackle the spectre of climate change in a way that allows space for our children and our grandchildren to live, whether that's 1.5 or 1.6 or 1.7, but it's not runaway climate change. Yeah. And one thing that really keeps me going is the fact that we know a lot of those changes that need to happen actually have other benefits, as we've talked about earlier, for health, for well-being, for the cohesion of our communities. Okay, that concludes our climate briefing for today. A big thank you to my colleagues, Tim Benton, Anthony Froggart and Glade Alan. Please do follow them all on Twitter or other social media platforms that are available. The links to these will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like, follow and subscribe. Please do leave us a review if you've enjoyed today's podcast. If not, we'll take constructive criticism. And Chatham House's weekly international affairs podcast, Independent Thinking with Bronwyn Maddox, will also focus on COP28 next week with a deep dive on the geopolitical context of the conference and the position and influence of the UAE as hosts. So please don't miss that one. To read more from our experts or to find out about our events, or become a member of Chatham House, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of all our programmes, including the Environment and Society Centre. Goodbye from me, Ruth Townend, and thank you for listening. (music) 